spoken maybe. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass for more years than I could dream of memory. I have walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional materials. You wake up one morning after not reading a book since your school days and you decide to be a writer. With no good or bad writing to compare against your own, you just know how to write and anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. Hell, maybe they're jealous of your natural ability to craft the masterpiece. After all, most people need to learn through a combination of books, courses, critical feedback and workshops. Not you though. It's not their fault. They don't realise your natural talent, but they soon will. How to Write Wrong is the new book by Amanda Steele. The book, which is an interactive story, gives the reader multiple options throughout its story. The book can be purchased from Amazon. Spoken Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label all one word, spoken label dot bandcamp.com. On the bandcamp it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled if you wish you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running plots for the podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label Hi guys, Andy End, Spoken Label, back in the house and back on Zoom again today. Uh, we've, got, we've got a bit of international flavour in. I didn't realise we were going to get this tonight. This is what you term as an unintentional international flavour. Because the gentleman I know, um, Steve Mingle, will chat with you today. Steve actually is a, Man- a Manchester-based poet, really. But when he rang him up now, he's just told me he's in, he's in France at the moment. So we've got a kind of international flavour. So <laughs> but Steve's brilliant. Met him for originally... Um, through Word Central in Manchester. It's a great comedy poet. So, Steve, do you want to introduce yourself, Edward? Tell me who you are. Um, are you originally from Manchester? Yeah, I am. I'm actually from Ashton Underline. Oh, I thought you were, yeah. Yeah, great. Tell people, obviously, where you come from then and what led you into your poetry and we'll take it to them. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I was, I was brought up in Ashton and then uh, I fled um, after you need to spend all my working life down south. And since I retired, which uh, was vaguely, I don't know, maybe sort of six, seven years ago, um, I, I started coming back to Manchester and spending more and more time there. And um, I'm now there pretty much permanently. Um, as far as what started the poetry, really, I only began uh, performing at the beginning of 2019. So about 15 months worth and then, and then came lockdown. Um, but prior to that, I'd done, I'd done a lot of writing. Um, I'm, I'm an author of, uh, of football books, actually. I've written... Oh, yeah. uh, oh wow. Yeah, I've, written, 
six, yes, uh, half a dozen, uh, half a dozen books on, on football um, since, which we started about 2004 uh, through to about 2017. Um, and so I, I kind of, yeah, I've got a bit of a history of enjoying writing. As to the performing and getting up on a stage thing, that really, uh, that was something that I did a lot in my, my job. Um, uh, a lot of the time when I was working, dating back probably from my, my mid-30s, did a lot of conference speaking and presentations, and that went oh. on to do with Explains why that. Explains why that straight away, because I think you can see it sometimes when you see people on stage and you're thinking, if you don't know someone's work and they look confident on stage, as you all done what the six or eight times I've known you and seen you perform, you, you, you go on stage and you own it completely it's brilliant that's why that explains why straight away yeah. things you know but tell us yeah, about yeah, thanks. I mean, that, that, funnily enough I, I you know every, everyone's different that's the bit of it because i used to do so much of it in my job that's the bit of it that i worry the least about you know i, I, worry, a more, I worry a hell of a lot more about the uh, about the material and getting it right and all the nuances and you know what that's like obviously oh, better than i do um, God, yeah, but, but in terms of in terms of being nervous when I'm up there, that just doesn't happen. That's the one bit that I can I, I, I kind of don't really have to worry about very much. <laughs> Completely. Tell us first of all then about your football books, and I didn't know about this, so it's great with this book label. People come up with things I don't know about. So yeah, which, who's, your always, who's your team uh, then? Who's your team then? Oh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a City fan. I've been a Yay. A their, uh, well, since uh, uh, all, well, all my adult life, and, and, and for quite a bit of my younger life as well, uh, even when I was living in Kent, um, and I had um, I had a, a, a career break, um, which I managed to manipulate around sort of 2003, uh, and I had like three or four months off, and I thought I've got to do something with this time because I probably never get this kind of opportunity again. Um, and apart from having a couple of holidays, I thought, right, what I'm going to do is try and write a book. And back in those days, there weren't very many uh, fans books on their clubs. You know, Fever Pitch had been out maybe sort of three or four years earlier yeah. than that. And there certainly wasn't very much in the, in the sort of city, typical city fans library. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll have a go. Uh, I'll have a go at writing a book of, about city and my experiences and watching and all that kind of caper. Uh, and uh, managed to find a publisher for it, which was great. And that, that came out in 2004 and really gave me the bug. But, you know, I went back to work and didn't really have the time. But then it, uh, three or four years later, I, I, I just forced myself to find the time really and write another one. Um, and then sort of since I, since I stopped working, if you like to sort of sort of stop doing a proper job. Um, yeah. Obviously, I had the time, and, and, and I had a, a, a real kind of purple patch in terms of getting books out there. I did, did three in three years, um, so um, I ended up with uh, ended up with uh, half a dozen, five of which, well, four and a half of which are about city, um, <laughs> and one of them. One of which is uh, one of which is about sort of English football generally in the in the in the sixties after we won the World Cup. And um, I've been trying it, I've been quite, I'm finding this quite interesting actually, I've been trying uh, through lockdown, my, my initial thought was okay, it's time to get writing again, um, but I've actually been really struggling to get any traction, I've, had a, I've got a couple of ideas, but it all feels very samey. It all feels like I've been there and I've done that kind of thing before, even though it's a, even though it's a, it's books on different eras and so on. Uh, and it, it's kind of quite interesting. It makes me think that you know, like a lot of people, you need to do something new and you don't want to be retracing your steps. So, so at the moment, I've I've not hit a buffer, but I'm kind of struggling to motivate myself to do that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm enjoying the poetry and the spoken word and storytelling side of things much much more, probably because that's new and different. And uh, you know, I just feel I've got so many more areas to explore in it. 
Yeah, yeah, get completely with that. You do. So you are, because you really right. He's very entertaining. So, um, do you have any sort of favourite poets then that inspire you? Inspire you to go doing poetry? Well, I, 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 <laughs> the one thing I was regretting, sort of regretting about accepting this invitation was that I'm actually a complete philistine. Um, I'm a, I'm a mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a, uh, and uh, I, you know, I've probably in my adult life maybe read uh, what about four or five books of fiction, uh, and no, no poetry. I'm a voracious reader, but it's all autobiographies and it's all fantastic <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like in, but you know, not none of the imaginative stuff at all. Um, so, uh, so that the, 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 there is only one inspiration that I could say to have had, and that's a guy that I saw for the first time in the late 1970s, who I'm sure you can guess is John Cooper Clark. Yeah. Uh, and I, I when he used to go out supporting all the punk bands and new wave bands of the day. Yeah, I remember him seeing supporting Elvis Costello up in up in London at the Dominion Theatre and that kind of stuff. And he really did capture my imagination because at that time and probably still, it, it is such a unique talent. And of course, he's got the he's got the most engaging voice in the history of the world, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> listen to anything and I enjoy it. So, and and I and I think I think in all seriousness, um, that's probably what triggered me to have a little go and just play about with a few words in poems because I started going to see him again, maybe about 2009, 2010. Um, and um, uh, saw him a few times when he was on tour with uh, my great comic hero, who was Frank Sidebottom. And, oh, um, genius, genius, man. Oh, he's so, oh, so on the same bill was just, you know, just phenomenal. And, yeah. and, and, and John was still utterly brilliant, although his act had changed to be more of a kind of stand up comedian, which he's also brilliant at, uh, rather, than, uh, rather than a poet. Yeah. But, um, oh, Frank Sidebottom was a one-off. Oh, my good grief. Oh, yeah. but look, I, I, we could talk all day about Frank, I can assure you, but let, let's try. Yeah. I could I could as well. I could as yeah. well. It's just an absolute yeah. genius he was. Him. Yeah. It always gets me. He, was in a band. Was he, he did it in a band before he gave Frank Sidebottom, wasn't he? Was the Freshies. The yeah. Freshies, wasn't it? It was I'm in Love with a Girl from a Certain Super Art. Check out this, yeah. wasn't it? Right. That's a, yeah, unbelievable guy. Of course, yeah. Anyway, so, obviously then, tell so I want to talk about that, your poetry itself, and obviously. Now, for people that don't know you, then, um, is there any sort of reoccurring themes that crop up in your poetry a lot? Um, well, I, I try, I, I guess, you know, going back to the days when I used to do, the, do, do a lot of the speaking, I try to be, you know, they're intended, uh, quite a few of them are intended to be funny, if not funny, at least entertaining. Um, all, all, all these stuff's entertaining, that's why I want you on here today, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there are quite a few of them, especially the early ones, are very angry, because um, the, the, the sort of, uh, the, the, uh, the, the thought process in terms of, of coming up with poems was sort of think think about things that really get on my nerves in everyday life um, and, and try and write about those and, and because they're angry poems a lot of the early ones in particular contain a lot of swearing because angry people swear a lot and I, you know, I, I certainly do and I was kind of thinking about it as well quite a few of them have got death in them which is a bit concerning <laughs> it's, it's, it's not something that's consciously in there but a lot of the characters in the stories of my poems end up stuffing it which is uh, a little disconcerting I wouldn't want to be put on the couch about that one, but it just seems to happen quite a bit. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, do you think then, uh, since you started um, performing quite regularly, do you think your approach to your poetry has changed in some way? I, I can't tell you how much. Um, uh, it's because, you know, I was 
you know, a, a total novice when I started. Stylistically, all the poems were the same. They were all had really simple rhyming patterns. They all were totally in rhyme, um, and yeah, and, and, and really quite tightly structured. Um, and because I because I didn't know anything else really. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was just all, all, all I knew and all I thought to do. And I remember the first time I went to a proper poetry night. I was absolutely gobsmacked. Um, but firstly, by how good everybody was. Um, because I, that's not to say I thought they wouldn't be good. It's just that I had no expectation because I'd never been before. Yeah, but I, the diversity and the different styles and the different structures, and in particular, I think structures—you you know, the way people pieced their words together and delivered them—and you know, with varying the pace of rhythm and some 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 rhymes within prose and some that were just prose and all. all all the different styles and coming from the diversity of backgrounds, I was kind of not quite overwhelmed, but really gobsmacked by it. And I thought, wow, there's this there's this fantastic subculture here that I never even knew existed, and I could just feel myself straight away being drawn into it. And there were there were probably there were probably at least half a dozen people that I've watched um, who I would say I won't mention any names, but they've been really influential in making me think, okay, how the hell do they do that? And I've kind of you know as a as a kind of scientific type of guy, really, um, I'm, I'm pretty analytical. I go away and thinking, what you know, how have they managed to do that, and how does that work? And I've tried to incorporate that in some of the things that I've done, um, you know, more more recently. And so the, the, the sort of structure of my poems now is 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 is, is, is kind of looser and different and more varied uh, than it was when I started. And that is entirely down uh, to just sitting and watching and listening to other people. Yeah, it's perfect. My partner Amanda's like that. Amanda started reading, she's been writing a long time, really, poetry. I for Just before we started dating a couple of years ago, I took her down to view poetry as as friends. And she, like you, she's very analytical. And she, your approach changes when you're watching what you're thinking. I can get away with this. Why don't I try this and try that? Now, um, last time I saw you, for example, I know you're going to do this piece later on today, not about Ashton Market, where you grew up in, and he said Ashton on the line. That piece, yeah. when I heard it, it was central in the week, I was really thinking, that's completely different tone to your earlier comedy pieces. Did you find yeah. that you channeled yourself in a very different way there, didn't you? I think? Yes, I, I, yes, I did. But again, that 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 isn't necessarily it certainly isn't something that i could have come up with originally and i i, I was thinking i was thinking about this and i think you're, you're absolutely right and that poem really was influenced by three different three different people who i'd seen perform firstly the subject matter um because i was in i was in a, a little night it was actually in ashton but which is entirely coincidental um and this chap did this really kind of nostalgic piece about his childhood and it was you know not not, not that this is a criticism in any way it was a really quite simple piece but often you know the simple pieces are the most effective and um, it really I, I, I was really evocative and i was on the bus back home into manchester uh after that event thinking that was really beautiful i wonder if i could write something like that which of course i can't because i don't really do really beautiful but nevertheless <laughs> it, 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 it gave me a it gave me a you know it gave me a subject and, and I thought you know well, could I write something about my childhood and then the structure of it again the sort of you know using rhyme within prose that came from listening to other uh, listening to other poets over, over the over the previous few months and then some of the language that I use in it trying to be like time stamp it by using some of the languages and reference of the day that came from hearing another lady perform a poem about her childhood uh, which was she's rather younger so it's a different era but the sort of same principle so 
there's so many elements of that that poem which are basically nicked from other people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I say you were influenced. I never say nicked, right? <laughs> 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 You've been you put a homage out, haven't you? A subconscious homage. Oh God, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's you got me talking big yeah. words here today. This is worrying. <laughs> At ten yeah. to four in the evening, I'm talking big words. And if you ever said, "Oh, great stuff," you ask me what I love your work is. Your is a great writing is unpredictable. You don't know what the writer's going to do next. And so I always love what your stuff is like. You can see you do two, three poems in one go, and they're all completely different to what you've done before. So as I said before that one. So do you have any ideas where you'd like your poetry to go next to? Any idea any sort of ideas of when lockdown is gone and we're back to normal with one? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm determined not to write anything about lockdown. Um, but um, it's uh, I, I'm, what I what I kind of aspire to be is is a kind of uh, a, if you like a proper performance poet, and really because I, I feel everything everything that I've written so far, I can get so much out of by performing it better, and that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to trying to concentrate on first. Because I've had quite not mishaps is probably overstepping the mark but basically um i thought once i've learned a poem and then stand up and do and, and perform it then then i'm performing it but really all i'm doing still is still sort of reciting it from memory and not actually putting anything into the performance and not putting any sort of physical gestures and not having enough sort of intonations and, and variation in the in, in the way that i deliver it and it's only recently that i start to think a bit more about that and it kind of dawned on me that i'm just basically a typical bloke and i can't multitask and <laughs> <laughs> whenever I uh, whenever I started to think on stage about you know I need to put this kind of uh, this kind of tone on it or I need to vary the pace here, I I break down and forget the words because uh, as soon as I stop concentrating on the words and thinking about what I could be doing with the words, um, I do you know my brain just couldn't cope with it. So it kind of taught me that before I can do any of that kind of stuff and, and perform in a more effective way, I need to learn it absolutely off by heart, you know, like a kid learning the Lord's Prayer. And that's oh, the yeah. only way then that I, I would be able to, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be able to improve. So, you know, and I just feel there's tons that I can do to improve, but it, it, I've got to put in the hard yards first to make sure, I, you know, yeah. I know these really, really well to start with. Yeah, I think a lot of it is like it's, it's educating your brain to, to get used to the words going over and over. I can't do that because I'm dyspraxic. So my memory is actually it's shocking. I can deliver and shout a poem <laughs> and perform it by after the day in front of me. In case I forget yeah. something and I'm under will. So you do like, no, I can't blame you. That's the way they are performing. I tell you, is make sure you know, say, 15, 20 poems if you've got that sort of set. Yeah. And then basically, you've always got a couple you can rely on. And then you can always be working on new stuff on top of it. Can I know? Great stuff. Indeed, so yeah. right. Well, that's pretty well all my questions today, anyway. So, Steve, if people want to contact you, how are they best doing it? Um, well, I, I have a difficult relationship with social media, um, <laughs> uh, but I, um, I, I I did a similar thing to this um, a few weeks ago, which was um, which was recorded for uh, for IGTV on Instagram. Okay. So that that. I'm not on Facebook uh, as I'm a conscientious objector. Um, so uh, I I was forced to kind of set up an Instagram account, and I'm, I'm still not really understanding how how to use it. But I really I'm, I'm finding it quite a, a, a useful platform to get a few creative little bits and pieces out there. And I am quite enjoying it actually. So I do have an Instagram um, an Instagram page or whatever they call it, uh, and I, I did in lockdown start to. Um, record a few 
really primitive videos of some of my poems. So I set up my own YouTube channel. I haven't really told anybody about it, but um, but it is up there, and that's called Garden Shed Poetry. So I've got about 15 pieces up there, um, which uh, if people want to have a shifty at that, uh, and I can obviously drop you my email address if that's going to be of any interest. Yeah, yeah, drop me that as well, Steve. So I've got, in fact, I've got your email address anyway, so I can put that on the right up anyway. So yeah, I'll put all three of these up in your email here anyway. So that's perfect. Okay, okay. Yeah. Right, well, what we'll then do is we'll then pause the recording, and we'll let you get let you take a breath before you read a poem out too out for us. So everybody, hang around. Steve is a quality writer, and you'll enjoy it if you hear it in part two. See you in one minute, guys. Spoken. Hi guys, okay, this is time for me to be in the audience now. Over to Steve, look forward to this night. Oh, cheers Andy, that's grand. Um, okay, well first one I'm gonna do uh, is a poem which is basically about my memories of my own childhood, growing up as a little lad in a working northern town, and it's called Ashton Market Part One. When you were little, the market was the place to be, and always the very first thing you'd see was a row of colourful fruit and veg stalls selling cauliflowers the size of beach balls. Prices in white card on black marker pen, satsumas, three apence each or a shilling for ten. The words special offer were always rife. You've never seen so many apostrophes in your life. We had such simple taste back then. Carrots and cabbage left us all contented. Broccoli hadn't even been invented. If it had, they'd never have been able to sell it, certainly wouldn't have been able to spell it. And as for asparagus, well, good luck with that. There was no place for fancy exotic produce on Ashton Market. I'd often go with me gran, and if you stopped for a matter with Elsie or let me go off and buy something fizzy at a store where cordial from a well-stocked bar and stored in what looked like a specimen jar was topped up with soda water dispensed from a siphon. When the nice lady came to serve me, I'd always tell her, please can I have a sarsaparilla? For some, an acquired taste. For others, a never-to-be-acquired taste. For a nine-year-old, the epitome of sophisticated taste, edging even the mysterious Mancunian magnificence of Vinto into second place in the hit parade of cool refreshments available on Ashton Market. When I got back to me gran, her eyes were sometimes red from crying, as she spent another week desperately trying to make ends meet. And on the days when she went in to pay the rent, I knew straight away this meant that when the window cleaner came for his money or the insurance man came round, we'd have to stay silent and hit the ground and pretend no one was in. Keeping all the balls in the air was a hopeless task, a bit like a Tommy Cooper juggling act, but not quite so funny. Yet on the market, she'd always find the money to buy me an ice cream. And even as a nipper, I couldn't help but note that all the women she talked to were in the same boat. A problem shared was a problem halved on Ashton Market. And on weekdays, there were plenty to share it with, as the market ground became a kaleidoscope of colourful shopping trolleys with garish tartan patterns, wheeled through the open spaces by hunched figures with wizened, haggard faces, all desperately short of dough, all with nowhere else to go. Old before their time, bodies broken by decades of manual labour, Futures with so very little to savour, enduring, not enjoying, a retirement that will be short-lived and joyless and increasingly propped up by walking sticks and frames. And one by one, those familiar faces would disappear and instinctively you'd always fear the worst. And usually you were right. But at least they'd had their three score year and ten and maybe another five. But one day in 1965, 
a woman dark-wigged over peroxide blonde hair, and a sinister man with an unsettling stare brought unspeakable evil to the market, luring a young boy into their car with the promise to take him to his door, but instead they buried him on Saddleworth Moor. And not one person then had the slightest understanding of why the hell they'd just abolished hanging. But in time, most came to change their mind. Instant death? That's far too kind. Let them live every day with the memory of what they've done. They indeed might sleep, but they will never dream. And our mums and our dads and our grands and our granddads and our aunts and our uncles and our friends and our neighbours would hammer home the mortal dangers of ever accepting lifts from strangers. So ingrained did this mantra become, so often did we hear them say it, that even now we still obey it. And if a driver pulls over to ask the way, or someone stops us for a light, our instincts to step back as if in fright. Our lack of faith in human nature cemented at such a young age. These days they call it being streetwise, but really wouldn't it be nice to trust people a little bit more? But we'll never forget that we were the lucky ones. Because even when the sun shines through and the sky's an unbroken sea of blue, there's a corner shrouded in permanent darkness on Ashton Market. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Steve. I'm really glad you read that one out. Start with there, mate. So, superb start that, mate. So, okay. I know you're going to do something completely. We always comment on the old days. Now for something completely different. It's Monty Python, wasn't it? <laughs> then we're getting yeah. something, now something completely different, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, well, this one, um, this one really is kind of, uh, well, looking looking forward to the, the time when people can all go back on holiday again. Uh, and after being locked down for such a long time, the last thing you want to do is get food poisoning. Um, and so this is a kind of public health information poem uh, about how to avoid food poisoning on holiday and it's really all about choosing the right restaurants or at least making sure you don't choose the wrong ones and the wrong ones are very easy to identify because they're the ones um, where the menus outside show pictures of the food that's going to be available inside and you know the sort of thing it's uh, it's uh, the the pictures are sun bleached and they're under dog-eared laminate you've got to think to yourself if people can't be asked to translate the names of basic dishes into english how much effort are they going to put into cooking them so this is called pictures of your dinner it's hard to know which one to choose the restaurant with the best reviews or the ones which sell the cheapest booze but the places that you must avoid feature output from a Polaroid and your digestive system will be destroyed if you dare to venture into an establishment which shows pictures of your dinner. Ignore the ratings on TripAdvisor. They're all fake and you'll be none the wiser <laughs> until you regurgitate your appetizer. You might only have a chicken sandwich, but your face will soon contort with anguish because is the universal language spoken fluently by anyone who's made the cardinal error of where they show pictures of your dinner. A passing tourist said, that looks nice, a lovely chicken curry with rice. It's already been recycled twice. Then the waiter came across to tell her to try the strangely luminous paella. Now she's doubled up with salmonella. He said the Angus burgers are tour de force. It comes with fries and a special sauce. Turns out Angus was the name of the horse, whose reconstituted and inadequately defrosted flesh made up the botulism bonanza, portrayed in misleadingly appetizing fashion on the menu which featured pictures of your dinner. 
Why hasn't Leona been arrested? They say his kitchen's rat infested and the ancient fridge is so congested that the meat's begun to decompose. But then how else do you suppose they do ten, three courses for 10 euros? I'd sooner eat my own excrement or suffer partial dismemberment or spend a week in Stoke on Trent than eat anywhere that shows pictures of your dinner. By now it should be crystal clear that vomiting and diarrhoea are on the menu if you eat here. But for bulimics, it's the perfect dinner because you're guaranteed to end up thinner. But be aware that what killed Michael Winner was taking a break from reviewing his normal Michelin star gaffes and dining just once at a restaurant where they showed pictures of your dinner. So you might think, well, that looks all right, but you shouldn't be running off in fright because all it takes is just a bite to have you chucking up all night. And it's no use being all contrite because it'll serve you bloody right for being so utterly mindlessly and unforgivably stupid as to dine anywhere where they show pictures of your dinner. Thank you. Brilliant. I, re I remember that one well from the reception I do. I know me and Amanda and a part of you don't know it. We're both sat there cracking up on that one. So brilliant. <laughs> it's got that. What's funny about that piece of me is the fact is that it's so, so tr truthful as well. You think like you see, yes. you see talk about <laughs> restaurants, if you use the best sort of humour, it's the one that you can relate to. And we relate to that completely. Yeah. So <laughs> brilliant. Okay. You're on something, something else completely different now, aren't you? <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. This actually is a bit back to the future. It's the first poem I ever, uh, ever performed. Um, and it's about the Jeremy Kyle show. And, when that went off the air in the middle of last year, I thought, oh, blimey, I'm never going to be able to do that again. But people said to me, no, don't, don't worry about it. People will never forget that show. It is a low watermark uh, in British popular culture. It's going to kind of, for the wrong reasons, always retain an iconic status and people will still relate to it. So, uh, so this is called 15 Minutes of Fame. So a quick swig, uh, swig of water. Right. 9.30 in the morning, every day, the dregs of society are on display in a TV programme that's truly vile with its knowing host, Mr. Kyle. Losers, bruisers, strip joint cruisers, dysfunctional dropouts from backstreet boozers, desperately seeking humiliation in front of a voyeuristic nation. No hope or ambition, their only aim is to grab their 15 minutes of fame. Got a text from the missus saying she'd be home late. She was off out clubbing with her hideous mate. So I went round her house and shagged her mother, who came highly recommended by my little brother. Now her mum's up the duff and she says it's mine. If I move in with her, it'll all be fine. Couldn't decide who to go with. So we went on TV where the audience insisted it's the mother for me. So if it all goes tits up, at least I'm not to blame. And I've lapped up my 15 minutes of fame. I suspected my wife was having a fling with a super cool raster dripping with bling. But even so, I was taken aback when our newborn baby came out black. She said there's no need for consternation. It must be an accident, the pigmentation. So we sat on the sofa in Studio 5 while the DNA test results were read out live. Now that bitch and her sprog won't be bearing my name, but we all got our 15 minutes of fame. My girlfriend doesn't want to see me no more since she can't be having sex with our Labrador. People might say what I did was wrong, but you should see what it can do with its tongue. I didn't set out with dubious intention. It was just another case of canine intervention. She was going to sell the story to the Daily Mail unless I told the viewers the sorry tale of how the family pet ended up lame. So the dog got its 15 minutes of fame. 
I don't normally gamble, but I wouldn't mind betting every single participant's a certified cretin with a studio audience specially selected for having brains that even the police force rejected. It's frightening that this show even exists, never mind topping daytime viewing lists. Have we got nothing better to do with our days than watch car crash TV and hungover haze? It's the great British public that's really to blame for giving these morons 15 minutes of fame. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that one. Oh, God. I used, to, I know um, I used to watch that vlog occasionally on oh, Lambda Pizza when I was at Lambda's over the weekend when she was where she used to live. And it's, it's just incredible. It really was incredible, that program. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> right. Okay. We're on to the big finale now, aren't we? And this one's um, a bit more of another interesting title, this one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah. Um, I, I suppose uh, overuse of the smartphone in, uh, in, in lockdown is, is probably a little bit more forgivable. But when we get back to, uh, uh, when we're back, at, when, if we get back to normal life, um, no doubt um, uh, misuse of the smartphone will become the major irritant that it was before then. Uh, and I wrote this poem about that, and it's called Smartphone Wank. Jesus Christ, I could do with a drink. I'm stuck on this train, I can't hear myself think. Men and women, girls and boys, all competing to see who can make the most noise. Calling the office, chatting to their mates, broadcasting intimate details of last night's dates. One phone's on. Hello, love, it's only me. Well, who the fucking hell else would it be? I don't get what all this racket's about. Isn't the concept of a phone that there's no need to shout? I'd sooner be stuck in a lift with a load of bankers than sat in this carriage full of smartphone wankers. In a tourist restaurant by the picturesque harbour sits a fluffy-haired geezer who could do with a barber. I don't get the impression that he's desperately poor, but you'd think he'd never seen a plate of food before. He's got a mangy salad with some plastic ham, but it still finds its way onto Instagram. I said, please don't do that. You look such a twat. Who the hell do you think will be interested in that? I'll have you know it's had 15 likes already. Yeah, from people who still go to bed with a teddy. He can't walk 10 yards in the port without taking a selfie, but his next one proved terminally unhealthy. Well, have you ever seen a luxury boat like that? I'll just take a step back for a better angle. Splat. He smacked his head on the jetty where the boats drop anchor. Cause of death being a smartphone wanker. Look at me, look at me, I'm at the gig. I bet you've never seen an artist this, this big. I'm recording it all, I'm dead close to the stage, but this bloke behind me is in some kind of rage. Every couple of minutes he vents his spleen. I didn't come here to look at your fucking screen. Keep putting that thing in my eye line and I'll ram the fucker where the sun don't shine. He was the most uncouth fella I've ever heard but he did turn out to be true to his word. As a consequence of his extremely violent action, a pretty nurse had to perform a rather delicate extraction. I asked if there was any way I could thank her. Oh, yes, please. Just stop being a smartphone wanker. <laughs> Brilliant. That is a fantastic way to finish up. That's the great stuff, mate. Thank you again. Uh, hang around, of course. We need, we're going to talk, yeah. we need to talk off mic, don't we, so... But, yeah. Thank you again for this today, Steve. That was absolutely super sublime, mate. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, mate, for that today. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Really enjoyed chatting to you again. Oh, yeah. It's always a good fun to talk to you. Oh, next time I see you, mate, be in person as well, mate. On the other side, there is yeah. this lockdown. So, right away, guys, girls, stay safe, stay sane. See you all soon. Take care. Bye. Spoken, mate.